Welcome to Friday. Yeah, welcome to Week in Review. Bill Radke here. I'm going to be your host for the next hour where, you know, we get together at the end of the week and discuss what happened this week, figure out uh, the important bits, catch you up in a, in a pretty quick way. And I do it with some skilled and experienced and I'm going to say likable journalists from around the area. We've got Publicola editor and publisher Erica Barnett back with us. Hi, Erica. Hey, Bill. Nice to see you. Everett Herald City's reporter, Isabella Breda. Welcome back, Isabella. Hey, how's it going? It's good, thanks. Good to see you, too. Tacoma News Tribune's reporter and Metro News columnist, Matt Driscoll. Matt, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Bill. Thanks for having me. We, uh, I, I'm uh, looking at them on my computer screen, and so can you, because we live stream the show. You can go to YouTube or Facebook, and you just search KOW Public Radio. You might think at first glance that Erica and Isabella and I are in black and white, we're actually not. It's just that Matt pops so much with that sunshine yellow that it just makes the rest of us look gray. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you, Matt. It's just bringing out my youthful complexion here, fading away very quickly. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, we, we're going to someday be able to see more of one another's complexions, whatever they're like, because uh, here's what happened this week. Right now, of course, statewide rule is that businesses and schools have to require a mask. It's been that way for most of the last year and a half. That rule is going to go away in a month. Governor Inslee just said he's going to drop the indoor max, uh, mask mandate on March 21st. I know that there are some people who feel that it, it should have been ended earlier. I also know that there's a lot of people who think it maybe is ending too soon. And everyone is entitled to their opinion about this. Oh, thanks, Governor. Uh, Erica Barnett, <laughs> Inslee, ha I watched the news conference he had uh, numbers. He had charts, uh, falling case rates, uh, hospitalizations uh, declining. So why? But you told me you thought this was actually more about bowing to pressure. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, look, he said it right then. That there are people who thought that it should have happened sooner. And I think that, you know, there has been a lot of pressure, you know, not just from Republicans, but from a weary public at large to uh, to lift some of the requirements, um, you know, not just the mask mandate, but the requirement that you show your vaccine card um, at the entrance to some businesses, um, you know, and I, I think the first day of spring is uh, is a lovely, a lovely day to, um, to to stop wearing your mask in theory. But I, I do wonder if the science is going to continue to support this this kind of fantastical notion that we are through COVID. Um, Omicron was a new variant. There could still be more new variants. And I'm wondering if we're going to have, you know, a, a very fleeting hot back spring, sort of like we had a very fleeting hot back summer last year. Well, before we hear from Isabella and Matt, Erica, he, the, the, all the officials there, the school superintendent and all that, all, all those types did say we're not done with with uh, the pandemic. And if things get bad again, then we'll change the rule again. But do you think ending the indoor mask mandate at this point makes that much, much, much harder if that were to happen, if a variant return, you know, new variant comes? I think that two years into the pandemic, we're a lot tireder now as a society than we were um, even last summer. So I do think it's going to make it harder politically to, to go back to sort of where we are now and where we were before. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how many people continue wearing masks. I go to the gym, um, and I've gotten used to working out while masked. Um, and, uh, I haven't gotten sick in two years, which has been fantastic. Um, not even a cold. So I will, you know, at least I'm saying right now that I'll continue wearing a mask, but 
look, if everybody stops, I mean, you know, <laughs> who knows what I'll be saying in, in a month or two. Right. Isabella, you're at the Everett Herald. How are things looking in Snohomish County? Um, well, I'm kind of with Erica on personally feeling like I still want to wear a mask because I haven't got a cold either myself. Um, but we did see, you know, as things relaxed over the summer and people weren't worried about this looming variant to the degree that they are now or just what we came off of, uh, you know, people are tired and they didn't want to put them back on when that mask mandate was reinstated and when students had to go back to school and wear masks. And that's where we saw those massive protests like in Snohomish County, they were pretty much going strong. Um, there were nurses protesting uh, vaccine mandates. And so I have all these vivid memories of the whole summer. So, um, well, I don't see a complete return to normal. As I said, COVID is still here and very real. Um, I also see that, you know, as we're lifting this mask mandate, if it's to come back at any point, then there's going to be an equal amount of resistance. We're going to see the same cycle perpetuate over and over. Matt, Isabella mentioned resistance and protests. Do you think this is, you're, you are in Pierce County, do you think this is the beginning of the end of protests? Because you might not like that it's another month or so away, but you can see that it's, it's not a forever mandate. Right. Uh, I mean, I think Erica is right uh, to, to some extent about the pressure uh, playing a role in this. I mean, clearly here in Pierce County, uh, a lot of people are done with it. And they've been done with it for a long time. And, you know, you look around the neighboring states and neighboring states are being done with it. And so I, I think it's becoming increasingly hard to kind of hold that line. Uh, you know, whether I think this is the end of, of protests, I, I kind of doubt it. I think that the uh, the likelihood of a, of a new variant comeback tour, if you will, is, is, is pretty high. Um, I think we're likely uh, to, to be in a similar situation in, in the future. And kind of even if that doesn't happen, I think one of the things we've seen over the course of the last two years is, is kind of pushback to these mandates and pushback to these mandates and pushback to uh, some of these public health measures has really kind of solidified and, and, and kind of attracted, uh, I think, a group of people that has some you know, discontent with government in general. And so whether it manifests as mass mandate protests or vaccine protests or some other form, I don't think that, I think now it's been kind of tapped into and I, I, I doubt it's just going away altogether. Yeah, it's going to be um, at some point local government by local government. Uh, King County has not yet said whether they're going to keep a mask mandate, uh, an indoor mandate past March 21st. Uh, schools is going to be really interesting as the statewide rule lifts and these local health boards and school districts are making these decisions. Already, schools in Richland and Kettle Falls have just gone. They went mask optional uh, this week, even though they're not allowed to do that. Uh, what is the what is the state doing about that? Does anybody know? Is it just a warning letter? That's the that's that's all I've heard so far. I think so I think the far. Richland schools cut, shut down for a couple of days. And then uh, we were talking about uh, uh, everybody's personal decisions. A uh, a listener named Lisa wrote to me and said, her five year old is vaccinated. Her one year old can't be yet. And she said, quote, all I want is my youngest to have the same care, the same respect. Um, why is the state not waiting when it comes to schools? Now we're talking about some kids um, who, are, who are very young um, and school students might have 
uh, not only uh, immunocompromised or elderly uh, housemates, but maybe little little babies on board um, who haven't had the chance. Why is the why is the uh, the state going to leave it district to district, and how do you think that's going to play out? I think that's something we see uh, unique to Washington State too, that there's a need for local control. I mean, districts as tiny as 1,000 index where there's only 30 students have, they have their own school board, uh, they pass their own levies, they retain that local control. So that's something that's really important to folks in education across the state. Um, but it sounds like, you know, as we're allowing these school boards to make these decisions, which aren't always rooted in science, they might be rooted in that pressure that Erica was citing the governor was feeling from those parents that marched into school board meetings over the summer and said, you know, we need to give our kids medical freedom and they shouldn't be wearing masks in classes. And on the flip side, we have parents who are very much counting on those school boards to make decisions that are going to protect their students and therefore their families as they come home and they might have family members who are immunocompromised. I talked to a parent out in uh, on the Tulalip reservation that was describing uh, when Omicron was surging that you know his biggest fear is that his kids that weren't old enough to get vaccinated were going to go get sick and bring it home and infect his whole family and they had a large family. So these are things that it's kind of scary putting that on the in the hands of these school board members to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and in, in, in the school board aspect of it is, is kind of, but you know, here in, here in Tacoma, I mean, today we've got a statement out from Tacoma, Tacoma Public Schools, essentially saying they're going to uh, defer to the local health department on, on what the decision is made. And so I think a lot of it, you know, when we talk about local, local control, and I think Isabella is exactly right, I think it's going to come down a, a lot to that kind of district to district and whether they're going to kind of agree with, you know, whatever uh, the recommendation is from local health departments. And an, an, another factor in this, uh, I, I think that we probably don't talk enough about is the influence of teacher unions. I mean, uh, you know, how comfortable are they uh, in classes without masks? Is that something they feel good about? I mean, obviously unions uh, exist for a reason and those sorts of protections and com conversations are, are really important. So, uh, I mean, I've actually been somewhat surprised that there haven't been, hasn't been more pushback from, from local teacher unions here in Pierce County about, you know, some of the returns to school and especially when Omicron was, was raging or whether they felt uh, okay with that apparently Apparently they did, but uh, I think that's another kind of layer to this decision and how school school districts will make it is just you know the comfort level with teachers. I asked my kids if if it becomes optional. I've got a 15 year old and two 11 year olds, and do they want to keep wearing masks? And they all said that they they're going to keep wearing them. Um, they're just you know that's that that's their bent that's their style but I have a feeling that they will be following the closely following the metric known as peer pressure, <laughs> you know, uh, I just uh, it's going to be interesting how that how that uh, starts to change you know uh, I, I feel it I'm I'm 56 and I feel peer pressure you know yes Eric well, that that's that's the thing I mean that that's the metric we all follow right yeah. I mean I you know I feel like I'm definitely for sure gonna be wearing my mask at the gym but you know I mean it is it is very annoying to to wear a mask at the gym for a long time I wore a mask outdoors even though I knew there was you know I mean the science the the health experts were all saying it doesn't matter just because everybody else was doing it and I didn't want to get glared at yeah. Yeah, I, I must say, uh, 
I mean, first and foremost, I think it's uh, silly and ridiculous to ask like to act like wearing a mask is some sort of oppression, you know, in, in the middle of a pandemic because it's not. So I have zero uh, zero sympathy for kind of the anti-mask side. But when we're talking about going in the stores, I, one thing I'm going to look forward to someday, hopefully, is not being immediately able to identify, you know, who has completely different politics than me or, you know, who believes in vaccines or who believes in masks and, and doesn't. It's, you know, it kind of weighs on your, your your psyche after a while to kind of have those divides so obvious and so in front of people. So, you know, as silly as it sounds, I am looking forward to a day when, uh, you know, not those constant reminders every time I go to Fred Meyer. Right. It's tiring. What about uh, vaccine requirements? King County said this week, that they're dropping the indoor vaccine requirement on March 1st. So that's just a couple of weeks from now. Restaurants and bars, theaters, gyms will not have to check your vaccination status. Individual businesses, though, can keep their own, whatever rules they want. And the head of the big restaurant group, the Washington Hospitality Association, uh, talked about that choice. And I'm going to find it in just a moment. Uh, here he here here's the, uh, talking about uh, a case by case business by business decision on vax requirements. This will be a big relief for those who who this has really put a twenty thirty percent dent in, and for those who this has been a positive. Hopefully, they've built enough culture up that uh, if they enjoy it, they they still have that option. I wonder what do you think? Um, how many local businesses, and it may be different, King to, to Pierce to Snohomish. Do you figure are will keep requiring uh, vaccination checks uh, when they they don't have to? Well, I I think in King County, you know, um, it will perhaps be a little a little bit higher. But there are reasons, you know, I I don't know if I buy that twenty to thirty percent uh, reductions in revenues resulted directly from asking people for their vaccine cards. I think there are a lot of factors that have contributed to restaurants and bars, you know, not having uh, as many customers as they used to. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's also true that, you know, we have made servers and, you know, hosts and, you know, just people who work in in restaurants and and retail um, into bouncers. And they're, you know, they did not, uh, they do not get paid enough to be vaccine bouncers. And, um, and a lot of times that leads to, you know, unnecessary confrontations. So I can certainly see, a business argument and just a kind of workplace um, conditions argument for for getting rid of those mandates. Um, on the other hand, you know, I really like the reassurance of knowing that when I go out, I'm not going to be coughed on by some unvaxxed, unmasked, you know, um, weirdo who just <laughs> is among the among the 30 percent of people in King County um, or in Washington State rather who don't believe that they uh, need to get vaccinated. So um, I'm hoping it's going to be a, a majority still still do that have that requirement, but you know I fear that it's you know very quickly going to fall off the same way that I fear that uh, mask usage is going to fall off when it's voluntary. Well, I, I mean, from the Pierce County perspective, I guess I'll just add that that's. And I hate to say it, but I mean, that's not really something we're, we've done much of down here. I mean, there are a handful of businesses, uh, a handful of restaurants who are requiring vaccines. But, you know, there's been no there's been no guidance from the county or, or, or cities requiring it. There's been recommendations. Uh, please, please, pleases. But we haven't really done that. And so um, and, you know, I'm coming to you from Pierce County, which, you know, has a much lower vaccination rate than, than uh, King County. And so. 
you know, certainly down here, the calculus has been that uh, for, a lot, for many businesses that it, you know, it would fear a loss of revenue, a loss of clientele if they were to enact things like that. Um, and so many haven't, a, a few have and, and bless their heart for doing it. But down here in Pierce County, I, I don't think there's going to be really any change. Isabella, Snohomish County, checking your VAX requirement at the door? Yeah, I see some of those businesses that have had it in place um, as soon as it sort of became an emerging thing that you could do. As soon as everyone was eligible to get vaccinated, I see those people hanging on to it uh, as long as they can. Um, and on the flip side of that, when Erica was talking about uh, business owners and people working in restaurants, uh, being bouncers and having to take on that role, there have been people living in Snohomish County talking about how easy it is to get a hold of a fake vaccine card. Mm. So um, there's also that side of it, too, that might not be factored in as much. So, um, yeah, I see a lot of the smaller businesses that have clung on to that just because of their ideological beliefs or their trust in science to continue hanging on to those requirements. Well, that was the announcement from this week. King County not uh, making uh, businesses check vaccine requirements at the door starting March 1st. And then the big statewide announcement from Governor Inslee saying that the indoor mask mandate goes away in a little more than a month from now, March 21st. A couple other uh, before we leave COVID, just some some little bits and pieces of news. Microsoft is reopening offices at the end of this month. Amazon relaxing mask mandates for workers. 35% of City of Seattle employees who work from home will be back in the office mid-March. Uh, Seattle's eviction moratorium ends in a week and a half, and criminal trials have started up again at King County Superior Court. As we keep tracking the uh, the progress of this pandemic, did we cover it? Any any COVID notes before we take a break and move on with more uh, more news topics? I think we I think hit the hit it all. we hit the big stuff. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, we'll see. And um, w coming up, we're going to uh, continue on Week in Review. Uh, you can watch it. You can uh, really enjoy Matt's. A yellow background as I am, uh, or you could feel more muted as we are in three other boxes as you go to YouTube or Facebook and search KOW Public Radio. Bill Radke here with you. We've got Erica Barnett and Matt Driscoll and Isabella Breda coming back right after this quick break with more Week in Review. You're hearing local journalists from across the Puget Sound area tell you about some of the big stuff that happened this week and swapping points of view and information on it. We've got from Tacoma News Tribune, Matt Driscoll is here, Everett Heralds, Isabella Breda, and Public Holas, Erica Barnett, and I'm Bill Radke. Uh, let's keep at it. Now, this week, some local corporations and philanthropists said that they're going to spend $10 million addressing homelessness in downtown Seattle. Downtown is home to the largest concentration of unsheltered folks in the county. It is one of the largest concentrations of folks experiencing unsheltered homelessness in this country. That's King County's homelessness czar Mark Dones saying with new money from Amazon, Microsoft, Starbucks, the Gates Foundation, Steve Ballmer's foundation, his goal is to bring the number of people living outside downtown from about 1,000 to fewer than 30 Erica, did he say when that uh, or did they say when that's going to happen? And do you think that's realistic? Well, the plan is to do that, is to accomplish that goal for the most part within a year. 
using um, peer navigators, which are a specialized kind of caseworker with a lived experience. Um, and do I think it's realistic? Mm. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, I think it depends on, you know, how sort of draconian um, the county is willing to be and the city is willing to be about keeping people um, from sort of re-moving uh, back into downtown after uh, assuming the kind of removal through sheltering people plan actually works. Um, I, I think it's uh, pretty optimistic considering, you know, as uh, Mark Dones noted, downtown is the biggest concentration of people experiencing homelessness in the state. And, um, you know, and it's it's the discharge point for, you know, it's both a co huge concentration of shelters and, um, and various kinds of services, feeding programs, but it's also the discharge point for Harborview, for the jail, um, and so for the sobering center, for all kinds of, you know, places that um, eject people directly back into homelessness. So um, I, I do think it's, you know, it's worth noting that this, this $10 million contribution is one time. Um, so the city uh, which and the county will have to either pick it up or, um, or stop the program after a year. Most likely they're going to pick it back up. Um, and also uh, because it's, it's funded by a lot of the same corporations that are downtown, um, it's, you know, it's focused on one neighborhood. Um, and so, so the question then is, you know, if, if all the focus becomes on downtown Seattle, what happens in all the other neighborhoods in Seattle where we're also seeing homelessness? Yeah, again, bef right before we hear from Isabella and Matt, are you saying there's, there's still not anytime soon going to be enough shelter or housing? So that means chasing people around more than it does helping them? Well, the latest count that the regional authority did of people who are homeless in King County um, found that there are between 40 and 45,000 people, um, about half of whom are unsheltered in King County on any, um, you know, at any point during a year. So um, optimistically, there may be a couple thousand new shelter uh, and housing units combined coming online in the next year. But I mean, this, this plan does not include any money, not a penny for new housing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's going to necessarily involve pushing people around because there's just not going to be enough housing units for, um, you know, shelter, much less housing units for the number of people that, that cycle through downtown in the course of a year. What about uh, Snohomish or Pierce uh, points of view and reactions to all of this and, and, and directions going on in your counties? Uh, Isabella, do you want to begin? Sure, yeah. Well, something that stood out to me that Erica talked about was um, kind of this concentration in downtown and not focusing on other neighborhoods in Seattle. Um, on a different scale, that's happening in Snohomish County, where a lot of the resources have been focused in Everett or north and east county cities and Snohomish County figure, well, the resources are in Everett, so we'll give them access, unhoused people access to buses to get to Everett, and we don't have to deal with the problem here. Like, their focus is so much on reducing visible homelessness, whatever that really means. Um, and there's really no congregate shelters available in North County. Um, and so there needs to be a more holistic approach to be able to understand you know, where people live, what resources they need in that area and being able to address regional issues rather than again, trying to just put all the resources in one place when they're already spread so thin. Um, so very similar issues up here. Matt? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, both Erica and, and Isabella's points kind of resonate with the perspective down here. Uh, you know, first, it's just always uh, striking to me how similar, but on a smaller scale, the debates that we see in Seattle are to the, the debates we see in cities like Tacoma, and I'm assuming Everett, too. I mean, right here, here we're grappling with the same sorts of things, just on a, on a smaller scale. You know, after two years of the pandemic and essentially not really doing any sort of uh, sweeps, for lack of a better term, and, and, and grappling with the, the Boise decision, um, you know, there, there are a lot of businesses, there are a lot of residents. I should say are, the Boise decision. Would you briefly explain that sure, federal, yeah, federal court decision? Just, yeah, essentially just uh, a ruling that found it unconstitutional to essentially criminalize people for being homeless or, or criminalize people for uh, life-sustaining activities that have to conduct while homeless while homeless uh, or unhoused. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of frustration uh, down here and we're, we're grappling with that too. We've, we, you know, much like in Seattle, we've got a, you know, an upstart group of uh, business owners who are kind of trying to rally uh, around, you know, increased police presence, increased, increased sweeping of camps. We've got a, uh, you know, ostensibly uh, progressive city council that's, that's trying to deal with these things. Um, so it's, it's all very complicated and it's all very similar just on a, on a smaller scale. And, and also to Isabella's point, I mean, Tacoma has historically been the hub of homeless related services in Pierce County. And that's been the situation for a long time. For a long time, the county's response has essentially been homelessness is someone else's problem. Uh, and that has fallen on, on Tacoma. Now, recently, uh, there's kind of been a, a switch of tenor on the Pierce County Council where they have kind of adopted a comprehensive plan to end homelessness, another plan to end homelessness. Uh, but that is kind of providing a, a, a bright light or uh, some reason for optimism to see some potential of a regional approach. But, you know, it's just always striking to me how, uh, you know, we make Seattle out to be this outlier where, where the homelessness is, you know, this, this, this huge issue. And really, I think we see these debates just on a smaller scale in cities around the region. You mentioned uh, uh, policing there, a separate issue from homelessness, but the mayor of Seattle was talking about policing this week, saying he's launching a police hiring campaign. Even if you're watching today and interested in helping make our city more safe and just and supportive, please reach out. We are hiring. Erica, is that a step away from or another step away from defunding the police? Well, I think that it's it's kind of just restating what is already happening, which is that the city is uh, is has a target of 125 new officers this year. They were funded last year by the city council. Um, and so that's kind of the optimistic goal. I think that to say we are hiring and to actually hire police officers are two different things. And the city's had a huge problem recruiting officers like every you know major city around the country has uh, in the last couple of years. So, um, you know, it, there was a there was some controversy um, with the hiring bonuses. The former mayor, uh, Jenny Durkin, authorized, um, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps uh, extra legally um, for uh, hiring bonuses to continue um, into this year, which they did. Um, and then when the Herald administration found out, they canceled them. Um, but, you know, it, there's always a possibility that they will try to extend those, which may provide some kind of boost to hiring. But I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what actually happens with those 125 officers. That would be more than have been hired in any of the last couple of years. Mm. Uh, anything else on on policing directions, um, uh, local policies, homelessness, um, crime, crime prevention, just checking in on with with. Uh, Pearson, Stohomish counties, uh, and and then back to Seattle area. What's going on? So I think 
we're seeing increasingly that um, police departments are also realizing their role in uh, working with cities and providing those like embedded social worker programs because they're the people who have boots on the ground for lack of a better word um, and are out there in the community. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about is there being limited resources and some of the more rural parts of the county, a lot of the city councils and mayors point to you know, they're moving in the right direction by getting an embedded social worker that's out there building relationships with some of those unhoused folks and trying to connect them with the resources, the limited that do exist. Um, and Edmonds is the last city to be coming around and adding an embedded social worker, which was actually something that was uh, kind of up in the air is there, they recently elected this more conservative leaning uh, city council that, you know, was kind of picking apart the human services division and whether or not they wanted to cut a third of their budget just as they're ramping up these efforts. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the next few years. Hmm. Yeah, down here we, we've been doing, you know, similar things, certainly not on a large enough scale, but, you know, we, in, in Tacoma we've got what's referred to as the hot team. It's, it's, you know, police that work alongside social workers when they're addressing issues related to homelessness. But I mean, one thing that I, I think is important to just to kind of note is, you know, a lot of times in the public discourse and certainly in the, in the raging public debate, the, the connection between homelessness and crime, I think, is is overstated or, or stated as fact. And I think there's a lot of reason to, to, to question that. Uh, you know, there's the study, I believe it's out of Oxford, that's drawing on the Seattle Pacific University uh, information that shows that, that the, you know, the size of encampments is, is not directly correlated to an increase in crime. Now, there's a lot of variables in that, and I don't think that puts the issue to bed by, by any means. But certainly down here in Tacoma, we're seeing, um, you know, discussion that's essentially homelessness equals crime. And I think we need to be really kind of careful about, uh, you know, drawing that, drawing that uh, distinction uh, because, you know, uh, they're not the same thing. One more thing before two, we, yes, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, to Matt's point, I think that's a starting point for a lot of cities too, is trying to change the discourse around um, what homelessness really looks like and addressing the fact that it's people who are in need of just getting their basic needs met. And it seems sort of militant to begin with using the police department to try to solve those issues as a lot of times they become agitators in those situations. So hmm. that's why they're starting with maybe adding that embedded social worker, but on a greater scale, getting together um, homelessness task force. So they may be ineffective in some of the smaller cities, but having people who have experience, either lived experience uh, living outside or just working with those who are unhoused and getting them connected to resources like people who've been in social work to be able to really look at, again, holistically people's situations and moving away from that militant approach, like Matt was saying, that there might be some assumption that homelessness and crime go hand in hand, which is obviously not true. Eric, I was I started off talking about this uh, new money from some of the big local corporations and philanthropists. Um, did I understand you right uh, on Publicola to say that in a way they there's a problem with the amount of money these new peer navigators are going to be making? Would you explain that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the issue there is not that they would be making too much money. Um, the, uh, the estimate that the authority gave me was around $75,000 for the peer navigators, and then their supervisors will, will make the job uh, description says between 100 and 130,000. I don't think those are outrageous salaries, but they are much, much higher than what people doing equivalent work on the streets right now, like um, law enforcement assisted diversion, just care, um, the downtown emergency service center, you know, you just go down the line of all the all the outreach providers, you know, which include people with lived experience. 
um, you know, they're making, you know, maybe 45,000 a year. And so you, it creates this two-tiered system where the government workers are making a lot more than the nonprofits that are paid by the government. So, um, you know, potentially, I mean, those folks already have a hugely, you know, have a huge problem retaining workers, recruiting workers because the pay is so bad. And so now you've got the secondary system where you can make almost twice as much. It just, you know, it, it creates the potential for some really bad outcomes where there's just a drain, a further drain of employees from this this parallel nonprofit system. It doesn't raise the bar. The same people. And re, it doesn't raise the bar and bring pay up other places. That would be wonderful, but there's no funding for that. I mean, yeah. that is that is something that Mark Jones did talk about um, at today's press conference and said, you know, we want to lift the bar and we don't think that it's okay that people are paid so poorly, but you know, the concern that I heard from providers is that, you know, the government always pays itself first. Mm. And so we'll believe it when we see it. And right now the funding is only for those peer navigators. And, um, and they're talking about, you know, maybe raising the bar for providers that work downtown. But again, you know, there's a lot of other neighborhoods besides downtown in Seattle, and there's providers working in those neighborhoods too. So right. it's a question of fairness. Uh, on another topic, uh, we're talk we're doing week in review here with the Erica. That's Erica Barnett, Matt Driscoll, Isabella Breda, and we were just telling you. I think it was last week about making single family zoned neighborhoods denser, allowing duplexes, triplexes, mother in law apartments, as they're called, backyard cottages. Some city residents opposed that, so the legislature was maybe going to force the issue, require that to happen statewide in in some places. Uh, but the bill failed this week. The Snohomish County Housing Authority's Chris Collier supported the bill and said that most local politicians wanted it, but they, they can't say so. They have observed the punishment that is laid upon local elected leaders that dare to suggest that the city should not be in final and total control over land use decisions within the city limits. On the contrary, elected leaders that get out in front of this at the legislature and speak in opposition pay no such price. In fact, they are given kudos by the community that is fearful of change. Isabella, is that just a pro-density spin, or do you think local politicians secretly wanted to be told what to do? And if so, why did it fail at the state level? Um, well, I'd say it certainly depends on where you're looking. Um, there are some cities around that have been working closely with uh, the housing authority to try to develop different ways to tackle housing issues. And um, a lot of that is looking at breaking out of this mold where we need 60% single family housing. We need to preserve our neighborhoods. But again, that has to get down to city council members constituents. And a lot of people don't want to lose the not in my backyard NIMBY folks um, when there's an election coming up. And I think we saw a lot of that here in Snohomish County in the most recent election when people running for city council were afraid to comment on, uh, you know, looking at zoning and trying to come up with creative options to expand housing options and uh, density being one of those. And, you know, when accessory dwelling units came up in Edmond City Council meetings over the summer, that was something that they had, you know, I think up to an hour of public comment pushing back on just something as simple as that. So um, I'd say it's kind of a mixed bag up here. There are some cities that are pretty, uh, you know, adamant about getting moving because the housing market's only getting more challenging. And again, if we're connecting this with homelessness, the best way to prevent homelessness is create more affor affordable housing. Um, but like I said, I just don't think there's quite enough uh, support from local governments across the board. It's way too much of a mixed bag. 
And Matt, the big, uh, the main pushback, well, for one thing, opponents call this uh, upzoning a giveaway to developers and also say it's just going to bring in expensive new uh, housing and, and housing won't get more affordable. But uh, what's what's your take in Pierce County on the same debate, local versus state, too? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by this, honestly, and, and it's for, for a couple of reasons. But one is because Tacoma for the last year or more, and time is all weird now in the pandemic, so it could be two years for all I know. But we've been going through a process of uh, reexamining our zoning with a specific goal of creating more density. Right. Like, I think we realize that we're in a housing crisis and these things are related to homelessness and, and, and people are getting pushed out. And neighborhoods are getting gentrified. And so that's something we need to address. Right. And so we've gone through this long process that involves all the public comments and all the long meetings and all the name calling and what has come out of that has been would be a big improvement over where things uh you know initially stood at least you know in terms of creating density but during that process speaking to the to the clip you played what has happened is it has gotten watered down along the way you see a little carve out here a little carve out here maybe this is a historic neighborhood maybe this view matters and so it's it's you know, it, the end product ends up being, uh, you know, less, uh, you know, less density than than what was originally proposed. And so I think there's, uh, you know, to the to the point of the clip, I think there is an element of truth to that. I mean, we were in an Ed board meeting with uh, Governor Inslee, who was a proponent of this bill. Uh, it was either late last year or early this year. And he basically said, you know, look, I'm comfortable being the bad guy. On this. Uh, you know, local politicians get too much heat when they propose these things it gets too hot they get watered down if someone needs to be a bad guy on this if the state needs to be the bad guy i'm comfortable with that and so i think there probably are a lot of at least progressive uh politicians who would like the state to st step in but of course uh you know the other side of that is allowing local control you know tacoma was a proponent of allowing that local control since we had gone through this process but you know you, you allow local control that goes both ways and a lot of cities can say we're not interested in doing that Erica, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think in Seattle, local control largely failed um, and, and in a lot of other cities, too. I mean, and, and so I think this was an effort to say, look, we're going to we're going to take it out of your hands. But at a very, you know, at a very sort of gentle density level. Right. I mean, at the most dense that the bill ever was, was, I think, six plexes. Um, you know, within a half mile of transit in some areas. And so it got watered down to where it was, I think, four plexes within a quarter mile walking distance of frequent transit that comes every 15 minutes. So that excludes almost everywhere, um, you know, even in, in a city like Seattle. Um, I was looking at a map of Magnolia um, and uh, I, I figured out that the only place you could actually build anything under the bill that died, the watered down bill, would be in the middle of the BNSF train tracks. Um, you know, quarter mile away from the rapid ride on 15th Avenue. So um, it was, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty lousy bill by the time it died. But I think it, it just, it speaks to um, actually, probably the solution is going to have to come at the local level because the state level, every single Republican was against it. Um, did they actually all intellectually oppose the idea of, you know, allowing more density and, you know, quote unquote, giveaways to developers? I don't know, probably not, but they're always going to vote as a block on this stuff. So, you know, that leaves Democrats, a lot of Democrats, including North Seattle Rep. Jerry Pollitt, um, oppose density, really want to protect single family areas. And so 
I think it actually, um, I think it actually will be more effective in the long run to to try to bring this back to a local level and and try to actually do it. Um, you know, at least it, speaking just for Seattle, I think it'll be more effective to try to do it at the city council level than um, than you know the state level because we're, we're we've seen what the result was this year. Hey, since we're talking about the legislature now and Democrats and Republicans, do you mind if I pick up on something? pandemic related that we didn't get to in the first section, which is the, you know, our, our governor can keep emergency orders going without the legislature having a role. And uh, I, I, this there was an attempt to 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 limit those powers. Uh, what what happened with that? Is it only Republicans trying to change that? What's who can explain what's happening with our governor's like it or not emergency power? Well, not everyone all at once, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I, I'm by no means an expert, but I, I mean, essentially, you know, there's been, I would say there's been pushback on both sides uh, to the idea of uh, emergency powers and, and kind of these emergency proclamations uh, lasting forever. You had two kind of versions of that in Olympia. One was from Democrats, the, the one that was advanced, which uh, is much lighter than the one that Republicans uh, oppose. Essentially, it, it means that, you know, when they're not in session, uh, the four leaders of, of each chamber could come together and, and, and a, uh, one of these, a mass mandate or something like that. Uh, the thing about this for, for, for me is, I mean, intellectually and kind of in a vacuum academically, the case that Republicans are making makes sense. I mean, I do think it's been two years. I do think that the checks and balances that we normally kind of expect out of government haven't been there. Uh, and so I can sympathize that in a vacuum. The problem with that is you, you can't untangle that kind of academic uh, debate from the reality that we're really talking about pandemic response, right? And when you look at pandemic response, the things since fairly early on that the Republicans and conservatives have been pushing have been, you know, wrong compared to what has come out of Inslee. And so it's hard for me to have a lot of sympathy for uh, Republicans who uh, say they deserve a seat at the table, although intellectually and academically, I think they probably do for the way government is supposed to function. And just one more point on this. I mean, I don't think it's purely selfless, uh, you know, the argument they're making. I think they know they would lose if there was a debate on the mass mandate or something like this. I think what they're, one of the things they're trying to do is, and I think they'll say it, is to get Democrats to vote on these things, get Democrats on the record on these things. Uh, and, you know, I think one could argue that that might have uh, campaign potentially advantages down the road. So, um, I mean, it fires I, I up the, in their own districts. It fires right. up their base to to, to be talking uh, about emergency powers and mandates. Right. Or, you know, if you've got a Democrat on record who voted for the mask mandate or voted for school closures or voted for whatever it is. Uh, I mean, I think that's something that people can run on. I mean, we saw that. I, it's not the only element of that, but from the San Francisco school board uh, story that we've seen with the recall down there. I mean, these these pandemic restrictions are um, they're a divisive issue and, you know, divisive issues can be politically advantageous. I would note too that you know declaring an emergency. I mean, this is a, as as Matt pointed out, this is a really extraordinary situation. But in this case, you know, declaring an emergency, and this is true in in all fifty states. I mean, every governor declared an emergency. I believe I could I could be wrong about that, but in you know most of the states, at any rate, declared an emergency, extended it beyond ninety days, obviously. And um, and that opened up resources. And you know, part of declaring an emergency is often you know getting resources from the federal government, getting resources from the state. Um, in Seattle, we have a state of emergency on homelessness. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I think that um, to, to sort of take that power away and to allow it to be rescinded at any moment really would have, you know, uh, potential unintended consequences beyond just, you know, the Republicans can get mad and get rid of the mask mandate. Um, and so I, I think that, I, I actually think that Inslee has used it pretty judiciously and uh, in a very extraordinary situation. And as we've seen, has has also bowed to political pressure by uh, by doing what he did just the other day, getting rid of the mask mandate. So um, I don't I don't feel that uh, the checks and balances have been so extraordinarily overrun that we need to you know do away with this power altogether, which I think effectively this would do, or would have the potential to do. Isabella, did we cover it? Anything to add? Emergency powers. Sure. I kind of want to piggyback off of what Erica said is that it's kind of, uh, you know, hiding behind the facade of, you know, we want checks and balances, but ultimately, um, as Matt brought up too, it is an ability to take a look and peel back the layers and see how people, different legislators actually feel on these issues, um, if there was that ability to vote and take over that control, but yeah. So this this is a watered down version. Do we, we said it's, this is not the proposal is not that the governor's emergency order would end automatically after 90 days. It would be that the legislative leaders would have to come together, if they weren't already in session, would have to come together to they, they have a chance to to end it if they want to. Otherwise, it persists. And is that is that proposal still alive in the legislature? Yeah, that's the bill. The, the Democrat version of that is the one that advanced. Yeah, that's that's still alive. OK, um, so thank you for that. Thank you for explaining that. And we are going to come right back and we're going to we're going to go to the library and we are going to smile simultaneously here at the end of Week in Review. We're going to come right back with Erica Barnett and Isabella Breda and Matt Driscoll. Don't go away. I'm Bill Radke. Thanks for joining us here on Week in Review. Listening, yes. Also, perhaps watching us on YouTube or Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio there. We've got about five minutes, uh, five or six minutes left in the show. So I want to leave people, as always, with something to smile about. Um, Erica, I just wanted to touch on the uh, impending choice of chief librarian for the city of Seattle. Uh, you wrote about how, among other things, one of the differences between the two chief librarian candidates is that uh, one of them is running a library system without living in that system's city or county or state. Would, what's going on? So the one of the uh, the finalists for the chief librarian, as you said, is uh, is a guy named Chad uh, Helton. He is the head of the Hennepin County uh, Library. Um, I believe he's on leave now, actually, but um, until recently, he was running the library system from his home in Los Angeles, and um, the uh, the county actually ended up passing a law um, that would prohibit, or that does prohibit, any um, director of a department that is public-facing, that deals with the public, so like, I assume the police department, homelessness, things like that, and library, from living outside the state. So um, it was pretty controversial um, in, in the Minneapolis-based uh, uh, Star Tribune has done a lot of coverage of, uh, of how controversial it was. Um, during his interview uh, last week, Helton said with, with the library board, Helton said that he didn't really see the need to live in the state because everybody was working remotely anyway. And he expressed some regret that his staff didn't know about it until, um, until later on. 
um, I guess when it became public um, in the media. Um, but, you know, he said he didn't really have any regrets and, um, and that, you know, it was his prerogative. Yeah. He does say he would live here if he is appointed to this position. It's a relatable thing. And I, I had heard about that. I hadn't heard until I, I read it from you that the interim chief librarian also doesn't live in Seattle or King County, but lives in Bonnie Lake. Yeah, um, Tom Fay is the interim, and he's the other um, the other finalist for the position. He lives in Bonnie Lake. Now he did he has sort of pointedly done his interviews, all his public appearances from the Central Library, or a very close facsimile. It sure looks like it. Hmm. Um, and he said that you know he does find it really important to be out in the community and act to actually commute into work. Um, I don't know how much he's been doing that during the pandemic, but uh, but yeah, he doesn't live in Seattle either. But he does live inside the state of Washington, which is uh, more than one can say for uh, for Helton and uh, his current position. And you can read about other differences between these two candidates and where they'd like to take the uh, the library system. Uh, Erica has written about it at Publicola. And um, we are just, uh, we're three minutes away here for the end of the show. I just want to make sure we're leaving time uh, to give listeners something to smile about. First, I would just like to fact check something Governor Inslee said uh, yesterday. He was asking us to Continue to wear our masks indoors until the mandate lifts on March 21st. People don't quit marathons a quarter mile from the finish line. Uh, they don't quit marathons a quarter mile from the finish line. I just want to say I would absolutely quit a quarter mile from the finish line. I would follow the metrics. How dark is it? How long since everyone's gone home? Did I just wake up in some bushes? It would be a very evidence-based decision depending on the level of cramping and vomiting. I would make that call in consultation with the God who has abandoned me. Uh, but uh, what else did we not cover or is something hopeful that we can take away? You're asking well, a bunch of journalists for good news. That's, that's <laughs> I know. It's a big ask. I get that. Well, I was just going to make the observation that we now have uh, both a governor and a mayor of Seattle who speak exclusively in sports metaphors. So I don't know mm. who that's good news for. Not not for me, um, a uh, avowed non-sports person, but um, but I do understand a marathon metaphor. So ah, Yes, we've talked about the sports balls before, Erica. It comes up every once in a while. I'm with you on that one. Uh, Isabella, anything we should uh, or that, that made you smile this week? Sure. Um, I, you know, I couldn't think of anything. And then I remembered last night as I was watching a city council meeting, uh, you know, there was some dead air as they were in a heated debate and no one wanted to say anything because mm. they were already at that tense point. And one council member had Jeopardy playing in the background and the Jeopardy theme song just perfectly filled that dead air. <laughs> wow. Kismet. Matt, did you smile about anything this week? Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to be sappy, I suppose, but it's our son's 11th birthday today, and there's a chance since it's a day off in Tacoma Public Schools, he's listening. So uh, happy birthday, August. That always makes me happy to see our son turn 11. But uh, news-wise, you know, I did an interview um, with a Tacoma t-shirt screen printer on, on Hilltop. He's been, he's had his windows busted out four times in about the last month. And uh, it was just really inspiring to hear him talk about, you know, the way the community has rallied around him and, and the way that uh, local businesses have come together and uh, kind of supported him and, you know, how he sticks it out and loves the Hilltop and has no, no, no plans to, to, to not be doing it. So uh, that was inspiring. If not smiling, at least it was inspiring. I read that piece in the, in the News Tribune. That's Matt Driscoll, reporter and Metro News columnist at Tacoma News Tribune. Uh, you've been listening to Erica Burnett, uh, editor and publisher at Publicola, and Isabella Breda, city's reporter at the Everett Herald. I really appreciate you all popping on here and telling us what happened this week and uh, figuring out what it means. Thanks for being Week in Review.
Thanks. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Always good to talk to you. And uh, the reason that you can watch that uh, on YouTube or Facebook is that my colleague Tio Popesco, Popescu, sorry, makes that happen. And social media is made possible by Juan Pablo Chiquiza here at KUOW. Kevin Kniestet produces Week in Review, and uh, we couldn't do it without you. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. I'm Bill Radke.